Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. Sometimes people come into Westbourne and say, oh, it feels expensive. And I would say these are the three reasons why. And we would do a lot of training amongst our team to say, yes, because we're doing something different and it isn't cheaper, unfortunately. I wish it were. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. Sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. Cross-training to composting? There's a new breed of restaurateur out there. They're leveraging the newest restaurant tech and strategies from outside of our industry to create entirely new companies. Chef Camilla Marcus is leading the charge for change. Today, we run through several of her endeavors, including a restaurant-focused tech conference, a nonprofit for hospitality workers, and her zero-waste restaurant, Westbourne. We begin today's conversation by putting to rest old ideologies that almost took our livelihoods and our lives. I think that we have an industry lore, as I like to call it, of martyrdom. And I always tell my team, we have to change the paradigm from working hard to working smart. Truly, if you're working 100 hours a week on a restaurant, you're probably not a very good leader and you're probably not a very good manager. And you should be able to take vacation. You should be able to have savings. You should be able to go out on a date and celebrate your anniversary. Every chef I talked to this year was like, wow, it's my first New Year's Eve with my family. It's like, I don't really agree with that. I think that's a choice. I think we're told that you are a bad leader if you're not hand in hand with everyone 24 seven. But I also think that that's a really unhealthy paradigm. I think it doesn't show good management skills. I think it shows the opposite. And then you're also setting the precedent that everyone has to break, break the bank and work so hard your knuckles bleed kind of for what? I mean, people burn out, they face very serious mental health issues, their relationships fall apart. Like, is that really what we want that this business costs everything? I mean, I just don't see that as success in my mind. So I've always set a very different precedent, but I will tell you that isn't always met with acceptance on the other side. I mean, I had a lot of media say to me, well, we can't write about you as a chef because you're not on the line every day. And I'm like, well, I can't run my business, build it all out, manage everyone and have a life and build a family and be pregnant and have a baby if I'm on the line. And even in COVID, it was even harsher. I had a six month old. We didn't know how the virus was spreading. And I sat my team down and said, I can't be in the restaurant. If I kill my son, I will never forgive myself. That to me is something I cannot look in the mirror and live with myself making that choice. 
I don't know one male chef who even that crossed their mind. They were in the kitchen the next day and I totally respect both choices, but we need to move to a place where both are acceptable and that's okay. Everyone has a right. Like you want to be hundred hour weeks. That's your choice. But I also don't think that that should be the default choice. And I don't think it's the only way to slice the apple. And I think, unfortunately, this isn't a podcast about gender, but it is harder on women. Uh, Childcare and really caring for the family still for better or worse falls on the woman and the mother. And when you're a chef and you're an entrepreneur and you're a restaurant owner and you do it all, you really can't be in all those seats 24 seven. It's obviously impossible, but it was interesting to see. I mean, media and some of the industry, I would say it took me probably three years for people to sort of see me in different ways and accept those, even though I do it differently. And I'm okay with saying, you're right. I'm not on the line every day, but why does that make it different? It is different, but why is our paradigm like I said, the knuckles bleed or you're nothing. I mean, that just seems not realistic. And we've seen it's not realistic. People are burning out. We face a lot of health issues and it doesn't have to be that way. I think we've just been allowed to keep that paradigm alive. I think so much of it has to do with this lack of external influence, right? The hospitality industry isn't influenced by other industries, or at least it wasn't up until very recently. So for us, the hurdle wasn't 401ks and subsidized healthcare. The hurdle for us was, can I get two days off in a row? And what are the chances that those could be a weekend? And that's as true for people in the highest levels of management as it is for the guys scrubbing the floor. And we're not teaching those skills, right? Right. Like I've worked for larger restaurant groups and someone would get promoted to GM, all of a sudden they're sitting in a budget meeting and everyone's yelling at them that they're not meeting budget. I'm like, I don't even think they know how to use Excel. And has anyone given them general P&L training? Are they spending time with our accounting team understanding what the levers are that they can pull? Just throwing someone in the deep end and being like, why can't you swim? Again, doesn't really make sense. At some point they will swim, but like, couldn't we maybe put them in a class or two? And like, maybe they didn't have to suffer for six to nine months. Everyone can learn anything. It's possible, but it's sort of like with how much pain in the process. And I've always brought best practices from other industries. I very much focus our team on reading about other industries. We pull a lot of people and culture practices in particular from other businesses and other areas because that's the way you get to the best solutions, right? Not just sitting in your tunnel. Well, yeah, you graduated from Wharton. You got your master's from NYU. And then you decided to get into food and beverage, which I can only imagine your parents were elated. (laughs) Well, I Um, went to culinary school in between that and worked in mm -hmm. restaurants pretty much all the way through. So it was definitely there peeking its head through, kind of the through line. Well, let's talk about Union Square Hospitality. What was that education like? Was it like learning from the masters? Really? Because I'm an outsider. Obviously, I read Danny Meyer's book. I've interviewed Will Gadara. I'm a huge fan of the operation in general. I interviewed Sabato as well. But for me, I always wonder, because I didn't learn from anybody. I mean, the people that I learned from were horrible human beings, which is why I decided to go out on my own and try it by just doing the opposite of everything that I saw in this industry. But you worked under some really diligent operators and then took on an operational role yourself. What was that education like? Really, at the time, it was such a transformative period of chaos. Shake Shack was going public. They had five major executive chef transitions, five openings. Their entire C-suite was new. The company was in a major state of flux, basically on the eve of its 30th anniversary. And 
I think the biggest thing I learned was change management. And I think what I came to bring to the company, first and foremost, was a lot of systems. Business development was never before a department. They weren't really thinking about outside of the four walls and how to sort of expand the business in different ways. A lot of things were not systematized that you kind of would have thought would have been. So I always said I felt like a speedboat next to a cruise ship trying to be like, the world's moving (laughs) a little bit over here. (laughs) I mean, certainly you learn best practices, but I also think the upside and downside is it's a very entrenched older school company versus... I always say like, I'm a millennial, I'm creating a brand for my generation. And I also have a team that's much closer in age to me. So I also understand how the world has transformed. I mean, food and beverage is totally different than it was 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago. With technology, with brand partnerships, how things expand beyond the four walls, how food trends are changing, how really like the world has awoken to our industry in such a different way. I mean, everyone on the line went to college, like that's unbelievable. When I was in college and I told my guidance counselor I was going to culinary school, I mean, she like had an aneurysm. And now my own college has a food magazine. They have a hospitality management specialty and all these big things that like no one was doing that when I didn't graduate that long ago. So I sort of have always come from the camp of, yes, it's good to learn from others, but I also think that part of working for larger, more established companies, the downside is like, The world has really changed in a big way. And I actually do think there's an advantage to coming to things much fresher. I remember my entrepreneurship teacher when I was getting my MBA said, if you're sitting here, you've already failed. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) thanks, cool. I look back on that and the truth is he's not wrong. I do think that really everything inside and out of this business has changed so drastically. And I think we're all still playing catch up, but I certainly think that a lot of the incumbents came from just a very different world than we're facing now. Yeah, I would say so. I would say the foundations upon which you built your restaurant weren't even topics of conversation 10 or 15 years ago. When we look at elements of hospitality, sustainability, and wellness, like these core tenets of waste management, these were never conversations that were had when I was coming up in the industry. Well, and even just training. So, so many people, I mean, we did a lot very differently. We do a lot very differently at Westbourne particularly from an internal standpoint. And one thing I always said is, instead of coming from learning from others, it was a lot of, okay, this is how things are right now in this business, but like, how could they be different? And where are the gaps? And one of the biggest for me was when I've said this, Sabato and I go way back, he's a pal. And I remember saying to them, I'd really love to join some of the wine trainings. Like I'm not trying to be an MS. I'm not an expert, but I've always been interested in wine. I grew up in California. That's so much of sort of the history and the lifestyle here. I have a lot of friends who are growers and winemakers. Can I join? And they're like, but you're not on the beverage team. It's like, you're not even in the ops group. It's like, I mean, I don't know, but I'm like in the company. Why can't I take advantage of that? So realizing that our industry is, I think, hugely hierarchical in a way that does not make any logical sense anymore. The ability to have continuing education and sort of hop back and forth within the business or within the industry is just tougher. Like the multi-hyphenate thing, which I've sort of always been a generalist from birth, I really came up against hardcore in this business. And like I said, I think media reinforces it big time. I had a wine dealer, I'll never forget a wine supplier who would not let me buy from them because he felt I didn't have the chops to be buying wine from him. 
And I was like, I'm confused. Wow. So my money and my selection is not acceptable to you because I wasn't a technical SOM at any other restaurant. We always had, I thought, a very cutting edge, interesting list at Westbourne and literally said to me, yeah, I don't respect you. You're not in the wine game. You're not in the wine crew. And no. So it's real. The structures are real. And I think that's a great example of a part you're seeing it burst at the seams this year now more than ever. And I think COVID is for the first time challenging sort of the old structures of this business. I remember a couple months ago being on a call with someone and they were like, yeah, my culinary team's now like packing orders. And it's like amazing to see they're really developing new skills. And I'm like, this is the problem. No one's done anyone else's job. They don't understand the full scope of the operation and that it's life-changing to you to have teams that are cross-trained. I think COVID is the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, of what a new paradigm is going to have to look like. It's going to have to be more flexible. It's going to have to include cross-training, continuing education, this whole like, you do this one thing and you will never cross into another realm. Absolutely. A server can learn to chop and clean and wash dishes just as well as a line cook can learn to greet people and pack boxes. And regulations are going to have to change as a result. Part of the tipping paradigm reinforces that and how people are legally allowed to be compensated is a big hurdle to that sort of future movement. But I think we're moving towards there. And I think COVID was a big change agent for that. But that was, again, sort of where having the experience of a larger organization that is very professionalized in some ways, realizing, okay, but there's sort of all these old school approaches that me as just a logical, curious human who is really passionate, doesn't understand why there's five doors that are closed to me. What if I did a class and I ended up being killer and I was like the best song to ever happen in the company? You'll never know because I'm not even allowed to try. And what we saw at Westbourne was really the opposite. What we saw at Westbourne was like, We'd have baristas come and they'd say, I've always wanted to cook, but I can't get a restaurant job because I've only ever been a barista. Funny enough, I actually think making coffee is totally the perfect training for working on the line. You learn ticket management, time management. It's a lot of chemistry. It's a lot of understanding your means, understanding time and temperature. It actually is super related to cooking, but most people don't see them as correlated at all. And in fact, I learned to make coffee at USHG because they had a sick machine and no one used it. So I said, well, can I call our coffee partner and get some lessons in the office so I can start making coffees? They were like, I guess, but that seems weird. And I said, well, I just like a cappuccino. And if it's here, I'd rather not walk down the block. This would be so great. So that's how I really got into coffee. (laughs) You've taken different approaches to so many things, though. Something I want to talk about is your food cycle from sourcing producers through waste management. We did the same thing at Pro and Proper, and we were actually in March when we closed, we were going carbon neutral. That was going to be like our month to do so. It's a huge undertaking. Many people do it differently. I'd like to talk about your approach to that because I can only imagine looking at the heavy lifting we did on our end, it's a big undertaking. Well, we had the benefit of... Part of my dream with Westbourne was, could you be more of a positive influence on climate change, how we grow fruit, how we make it, how we waste food, how we recycle it is a huge driving element of climate change. And could we be an example and a support for the community to just 
by eating out, enjoying yourself, actually do something that's beneficial to the environment in ways that we really haven't looked at sort of closed loop. So it was my goal from the start. So we started with equipment that we were sourcing being energy efficient. We looked at no disposables in the restaurant, only compostables for disposables from the start, all green and clean cleaning materials down to who's growing and making our wine. How is our food being packaged and brought in? How do we create more of a just-in-time inventory system so that we're not having tons of food spoil, which happens a lot? We're doing one event here. How are we going to pull that leftover food back into the restaurant? Are we going to co-sell the same menu to two events so that we're actually only making one thing? I mean, it's a lot that goes into it. I actually think the benefit was it was always our DNA. And so it's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to change. If someone's not used to cooking with compost next to them, all of a sudden they have to manage two trash cans and sorting while they're cooking on the line. It's easier if you just start that way. And like your right hand never knows that that is not compost. It's a lot harder to retrofit. So we did have the benefit of, it was always my goal to be the first certified zero waste restaurant in Manhattan. We got our certification actually the day of the shutdown as well. We didn't announce it till June, given all the Mm -hmm. chaos of the world, but we actually got the certification literally the day of the shutdown after a year of work. Honestly, I don't think it's that hard. I think it just takes foresight, planning, and commitment. And it takes training. For me, I felt like it mattered to the people who we hired and who are part of our collective. And I think it made us better, but it does take that commitment and it takes buy-in in that way. You need to have people who are into it, who are going to be willing to count trash bags at the end of the night and really care that that makes a difference. Or someone who is actually going to take the time to put something in recycling versus compost rather than landfill or someone who's going to stick their hand. The team would always laugh. They're like, you walk by all the trash cans and you're sticking your hands in and resorting. But that shows everyone that I expect everyone to walk by trash and know the difference and sort Mm -hmm. it. It takes five seconds. Just do it. I just think all of that, it's really just about wanting to do it and then committing to do it and just making it part of your culture and your daily practice. Even from a creative culinary standpoint, it's not that hard. You just have to be willing to do it. And if anything, it makes you more creative, I think. But you have to see the limitation as a fuel for inspiration rather than handcuffs. And from a culinary standpoint, you can always galvanize your vendors to help you source the right ingredients for you, then meet with your ideologies. And honestly, we even found with guests, I mean, we would have companies come to us and we still do a lot of sort of brand work and collaborations and events and remote things. And we would be upfront and say, hey, look, we can do this, but we do zero waste catering. We charge more for it. We bring ceramics, we pick them up, but it does cost a premium. And people would seek us out for that, even though it did cost more. Or we'd be able to say to them, hey, you know what? We're also doing this store opening later tonight for this brand. They have this menu item. Are you okay if we do that for you too? Because it would actually help. We don't then have to have a case of wasted whatever in our walk-in. And that just makes it so much better. And I think we underestimate how much guests are interested and actually want to sort of peek behind the curtain. And they are willing to be more flexible and frankly, even pay a premium to do their part. I think we haven't given them enough credit. Let's talk about that because, you know, it begs the question, okay, so we're doing the right thing. Is it a recipe for profitability? Are you able to scale that model It is, but you have to charge for it. Going to pick up ceramics costs money. And we would be very clear about that. We charge an extra premium, but this is what you're getting for it. 
we did things in glass jars. Everything is compostable, but we bake it into the price and we're very clear. We're not the cheapest option. Sometimes people come into Westbourne and say, oh, it feels expensive. And I would say, these are the three reasons why. And we would do a lot of training amongst our team to say, yes, because we're doing something different and it isn't cheaper. Unfortunately, I wish it were. Even when you talk about composting, I was very clear with guests. We pay 4X to compost because it's privately done. There's only three haulers that do it in New York and the city doesn't support it. So it does cost more and you have to decide what's important to you. If you're trying to get a dollar value meal, this is not the place to do it. And I'm okay with that. I'm more than transparent about why it costs more. But the way to make it profitable is you have to charge the value and you have to know your costs and bake it in and really bake in your margin and be clear. But like I said, we ended up seeing and we still see it, we're sought out for that ethos with especially companies and brands and groups who understand that that is different and they want to do their part and they want it to be done right. It's 2021 and we're seeing our way through this. And I'm sure during this time that we've all had to like sit back and reflect on our lives, that we've made a lot of great decisions and we probably made some poor ones along the way. How do you envision yourself doing business differently in 2021? Make sure I have outdoor space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, truly not much would be different. I think the biggest thing is I will never do a fixed rent lease so long as I live. One of my big things I would like to do is figure out, and I actually wanted to do this when we opened Westbourne, but property prices were just crazy. And I think we will see a reset this year and sort of a structural reset, hopefully. I think finding partners and figuring out how to own your real estate is a big piece of it too. I mean, you even 100%. saw with you know, Union Square Hospitality Group, the one owned restaurant is Gramercy Tavern and it's always operated so differently. And I think you feel things very differently when you're there. Even from a team standpoint, when you own your space, it's just different. And the investment decisions and how you run things, you're part of the long term, right? You're not just a short term steward, you're really in it to win it for the long term. And for sure. I think we as restaurateurs are long term thinkers. And I think to be tenants, again, undercuts that inherent approach. And I hope that that changes. And I hope more people wake up and try and help restaurants do that. Because I think us as just tenants, as we've seen this year more than ever, it's not the right dynamic. And I think it doesn't do justice to what restaurants are doing, what they're investing, what they're giving back and what they're doing for their communities. I think we should have much more leverage and more on par. I mean, I hate to say power, but truly on par power as landlords and lenders and government does. And I'd like to see us reemerge as more equitable partners in that dynamic. Let's talk about advocacy. What came first, Roar or the Independent Restaurant Coalition? Same exact day. Really? Actually, the same exact day. One of my first phone calls was to Tom Colicchio, who I'd worked with previously. Tom is a very passionate advocate. I always tell him I know he's going to run for office one day, and I better get a phone call with a heads up so I can help support him. He's been very involved in policy and government at many levels. I know now he has a big podcast about it, but it's been for a long time. And so he was really one of my first phone calls to say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because I'm seeing mass unemployment on a scale, the likes of which the government has no clue or concept of. And I'm getting very scared about what's going to happen in the next year. And he said, yeah, and there's something going on at the national level. You need to jump on the call today. And so really Roar and the IRC were founded in the exact same day. And really, 
out of the same storm. And I would say with similar missions, but obviously playing in different governmental levels, which obviously changes sort of how it's structured and how it runs and what we're asking for. But I think with very much the same seed of an idea and need. What is ROAR and what is the mission of ROAR for the folks listening? Yeah. So ROAR is uh, relief opportunities for all restaurants and really created to try and restructure the industry out of this crisis to pave a way for a much more sustainable future for the industry in New York. 10% of restaurants around the country are located in New York. We employ almost a million people in New York State, more than airlines do nationwide combined. And as the second largest private employer in a state like New York that doesn't even have a restaurant department or anyone whose job is to sort of think about the industry shows you what a mountain we have to climb. And the goal is really to be progressive and effective, hopefully using this crisis as an opportunity for real systematic change so that this is an industry where margins just got suppressed from an average of 20% to 5% as industry standard over the last 15 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't take care of your teams on razor thin margins. And there's a lot of structural regulatory, like I said, wanting to cross train is impossible when you have certain tipping regulations and structures that weren't chosen by restaurants, that weren't created by restaurants for restaurants that really limit an industry that's trying to revolutionize. And I think trying to progress into a new era, frankly. And I keep saying too, the industry is really professionalized, almost more like a European model in a way that our public and our government haven't really caught up to. It's been happening. I think we all know it, but I don't think it's been perceived that way and quite seen for the scale, the scope, the integration into our communities and culture, and what a big economic driver we represent now. So it's sort of our goal to carve out a real place, a real seat at the table so that we can make systemic change, that it can actually be a sustainable industry that's a fulfilling place to work going forward. You've worked in the industry in multiple ways. Can you talk to me about Tech Table? Oh, wow. Yeah. So Tech Table was created about six years ago. Um, really just starting to see, again, to your earlier point, we have been kind of an isolated industry for quite a while. And one of the elements I think that's the biggest marker of that is technology. So six years ago, you saw about $5 billion being poured into hospitality tech. And yet, most operators would tell you 90% of the solutions weren't actually solutions. They were created by guests who enjoy being taken care of and want some cool product to play with, but it wasn't actually helping the industry. And so myself and my co-founders really started doing some research thinking, well, there has to be a place where everyone's gathering. Like we got to bring people together because there's a lot of money being poured into bad solutions. Operators feel left out of the conversation and it just feels like this vicious cycle and kind of a huge resource waste for something that we actually really need. We need to move away from paper and pencil. We need to be owning the data and analytics of our business. We need to be leveraging social media for business development and guest cultivation the tech is there, it just hasn't really been tailored and integrated properly into this business, which is super unique operationally. Not to mention, none of the tech really had to do with back of the house at all at that point. So lo and behold, nothing really existed. And so we decided to bring together 250 thought leaders from the investing world, tech entrepreneurship, as well as restaurant and hospitality leadership. And it took off kind of like wildfire. So I think that we were very proud to be sort of the thought leaders in the space of where the trends are going, bringing people together who have since collaborated and really created meaningful solutions 
that our ethos has always been high tech for high touch. So it's not just about technology for technology's sake, but how do you make the delivery of hospitality and that human experience better with the use of technology in very strategic ways? It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, (laughs) I like to give the guests an opportunity to talk directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to offer? Probably my biggest is just continuing to believe that the impossible is always possible. I think that we are incredibly talented, perseverant, hardworking, creative, and compassionate individuals. And I think that combination is incredibly rare. And I think that we have to start pushing, as I said, for a greater seat at the table. And I think more mutual respect for our proper place and what we've already been doing and contributing sort of to society at large. And I think not settling for less than what we deserve. This pandemic has showed that we do deserve more. And just because we haven't been given it to date doesn't mean we should give up trying and we shouldn't stop until we do. We are, I think, a very, very special collective of humans that will figure it out. We'll figure it out, but we have to keep fighting. Vet chef Camilla Marcus. For more on Westbourne, go to westbourne.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our other content, or read our daily publication, go to fullcomp.media. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.